Good morning. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, that's the first book in the New Testament. Old Testament is about God creating the world and creating Israel to be his people. The New Testament is about God sending Jesus to create a new people called the church. And both those stories combined are about God saving the world from sin through the work of Christ. So the book of Matthew, as the first book in the New Testament, introduces us to the main character of the next part of the story, which is Jesus. Now, everyone knows that Jesus existed. It's pretty much a well-established historical fact. There was a man who lived 2,000 years ago, and he was from Nazareth. And he talked to a lot of people, and a lot of people listened to him. Everybody agrees with that. This book is written to show you that he's not just that, that this Jesus of Nazareth was something else too. Specifically that he was the chosen one of God, sent to do something specific. So Matthew's making a case showing that the Jesus that everyone knows about is more than just a man. He's more than just a carpenter. He's more than just a rabbi. He is the Christ, the Messiah. It's a pretty big claim. It's the biggest claim, in fact. And so the book is, is unique in showing us who Christ is, who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for us all these many years later. So read with me uh, chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 13. Now, the beginning of chapter 2 was about the three wise men, which we don't know if there are three or not. We don't know if they're wise or not. But they were basically several magicians from a faraway country showed up looking for a new baby who they realized was the king. And they went to the old king and said, we're looking for the new king, which is usually a bad idea because the old king says, I'm not ready to stop being king yet. (laughs) And so these three guys, or these several magicians, sorcerers from out of town, didn't know better. So they tell this old king named Herod, Herod was king of Israel, uh, Rome, the the Roman Empire made him king of that region. He was not a nice person, but he pretended to be. And he said, you go find Jesus, you find this new king, and when you find him, come back and tell me where he is so I can go worship him. And the wise men did, the three kings or three magi left. And they worshipped the new baby, gave him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is why we give gifts during the Christmas season as a Example of that, what they did here. They, real, they don't go back to Herod because an angel tells them, if you go back to Herod, he's going to kill you. And he's going to go kill the baby too. So they left, and then we get to our passage. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph being uh, the adopted father of Jesus, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death 
all the male children who are in Bethlehem, and it's all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so we get Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was a little town in the northern part of, Ju of Israel. Bethlehem is in the southern part of Israel, so they was born in Bethlehem, ended up in Nazareth. We know about Herod from other sources outside the Bible. He was a terrible person. Everything you read about Herod, this wasn't the worst thing he did. Uh, this actually makes a lot of sense if you know the rest of Herod's life. This is part of the Christmas story where we think of, you know, baby Jesus in a manger and a star in the sky and the shepherds and gifts and joy, joy to the world. But you notice in this whole story, there's not a single good part. It's just bad news, more bad news, and more bad news. That's not good. That's, that's, we come to church to hear good news. But the Bible's saying, here's a really interesting story about a bunch of people that were either oppressed or killed. And that's where the Christian life starts. So the Bible's talking about suffering. Where does suffering come from? Why does suffering exist? People have answers. So Mahabharata, who was a Hindu leader of many, many hundreds of years ago, he gives the Buddhist, the Hindu answer. Happiness comes due to good actions. Suffering results from evil actions. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's what we call karma. Karma, as expressed by this Hindu leader, you put out bad things, you get bad things. You put out good things, you get good things. And there's the entire Eastern religion works around that concept. And large parts of America, including Christians, work around that principle. Do good deeds, get good energy. Be a bad person, get bad energy. But what about this story? What about when you didn't do anything wrong? And you still get bad stuff. So we're going to see three things in this passage. The unjust suffering of Christ. Where is God in this suffering? And what's our path in suffering? Don't trust anyone who doesn't talk about suffering. They're trying to sell you something. This passage does not avoid, minimize, or distract from the terrible suffering in this world. But we're going to see how we, as Christians, understand it. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, partly because he was, his 
parents were required to go there to pay taxes. So they did what they were told. They show up. They have a baby. And then what happens? The baby turns out to be a terrible person, and so he's killed? No, the baby doesn't do anything. Instead, he's hunted by Herod the king simply because Herod the king is afraid. Jesus begins suffering the moment he comes into this world, and he didn't deserve it. It was unjust. And it shows us one thing. If you live in a world with powerful people, you will suffer injustice. Because powerful people like Herod, when they see a threat to their power, will seek to remove that threat. This is the story of the whole Bible. If you don't know the story of the Bible, it starts with God giving good things, man taking those good things and using them to oppress people. That's Genesis 3 to the very end of the Bible. God, Man taking God's gifts and using them to keep other people down so that they can raise themselves up. Caitlin Scheiss says, there's a reason the prophets so consistently connect idolatry and social injustice. In the end, idols will always demand things of you that you can only give them by exploiting other people. False gods demand things from you that you can only get by stepping on other people. So Herod, worshiping power, the false god of power. He's the king. He wants to stay the king. But the only way to stay the king, to worship this idol of power, is to turn on his fellow man. The only way to stay king is to make sure no other king shows up. He doesn't care who should be king. He doesn't care whether he should be king, whether it's a good thing to be king. All he cares about is being king. And if that means killing babies, so be it. And so he sacrifices to the God of power, and he must step on other people to do it. That's the story of false worship, whatever your false worship may be. To finally sacrifice to it, you have to undo what God has done. And what God has done is created people in his image to worship him. So we must undo that work, demean people, oppress them. And so we see the beginning of the Christian story as a story of oppression, of of the baby Jesus, who will never do an unjust thing in his whole life, immediately being oppressed, hunted, a refugee, an exile. It's a hundred miles from Bethlehem to Egypt. They left at night on foot. Have you ever carried a baby 100 miles on foot? Joseph wakes Mary up in the middle of the night and says, wake up, we have to leave right now. Why? The king is coming to kill us. And they knew Herod, so they said, he's already done this. He killed his wife. He killed his two favorite sons. He organized for hundreds of nobles to be killed when he died so that there would be a big funeral. So a few babies in Bethlehem, there's probably 10 or 20 in a really small town. Mary said, we've got to get out now. So they grab their stuff, and they walk out the door that night, and they walk 100 miles, which take about a week, to Egypt, to another country. They didn't have family, they didn't have friends, they are foreigners. That is a terrible experience. 
the Bible tells us this so that you can see what it was like to be Jesus. From the moment he shows up in this world, he's on the road fleeing. That shaped the rest of his life. For the rest of Jesus' life, when Mary would talk about him growing up, she would talk about being a refugee in Egypt. And all the problems that come along with knowing that when the king doesn't want you there, you're not there. You either run or you die. That's the life of Jesus. But maybe it got better, right? Didn't get any better. He comes back. So he's warned. He flees to Egypt. He lives there for, for some period of time, maybe two years. Herod dies. So they come back. But his son shows up, and, and his son only lasted for a few months because he was so bad that the Roman Empire, which is not exactly known for justice, got rid of him. That's how bad he was. So they hear he's in charge, and so they say, we can't go back to Bethlehem, which is near Jerusalem, near the capital. So they're warned they go north. And the further you get away from Jerusalem, the worse it gets. The more rural it gets, the, the, the more uh, poverty exists, the smaller the towns get. They don't just go to Galilee, which is sort of the lowest region of that area. They went to the town of Nazareth, which was known for being the worst place in the entire country to live in. And he spends the rest of his life in obscurity, poverty, and disgrace. The rest of his life. He grows up, uh, grows up in a town that no one wants to be from. He grows up in abject poverty. He grows up under oppression, both from his own government and from the Roman government, which was oppressing his own government. That's the entire life of Jesus. He was never comfortable. He never had any comfort his whole life. He lived hand to mouth, day to day, his whole life. A life of poverty, obscurity. Nathaniel, who was one of his own followers, when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is it even possible to be a good person and from Nazareth? That's where Jesus lived. He said, so that it might be spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, you're not going to find a quote in the Old Testament that says that, but the entire story of the Old Testament is the Messiah, you won't recognize him. He won't be where you think he's going to be from. He'll be from where you don't think he's going to be from. In fact, there's no prophecy about Nazareth in the Old Testament because Nazareth didn't exist in the Old Testament. Bethlehem was a tiny town, but Bethlehem was where King David was born in the Old Testament. So at least if you were from the tiny, poor town of Bethlehem, you say, well, we're poor, but look where we came from. This is where David was born. Nazareth wasn't even in the Old Testament. There was no history of Nazareth because it only started existing recently. You, you couldn't say, well, we're poor, but it was just, we're poor. We're dirt. We're the bottom of a poor country. That's where Jesus grew up, worked, went to school, lived. And then he died the same way. He was hunted down in the middle of the night. He didn't flee to Egypt this time. They caught him. He gave himself up. He was beaten. He was humiliated. He was mocked. He was tortured. And then he was killed on public display. You see the story of Jesus? From day one 
But when he died, it's the same story. Suffering. Poverty. Oppression. Why? If Jesus is God, then why did he choose the worst possible life to live? He didn't just choose a hard life or a tough life. He chose the, he chose the worst life. That sounds like he's not God, doesn't it? Because if he had any power, he, like you, used that power to improve your life. You don't live in the worst neighborhood. You don't live in the worst country, do you? Because you used the power of work, savings, good management, family ties to improve your life. Jesus did the opposite. Why did he do it? Look in verse 16. Uh, Herod kills all the babies. And in verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Now, you'd have to go back to the Old Testament to find out what happened. A foreign country called Babylon invaded Israel. This happens all the time. And in order to keep Israel from rising up again, they just took everybody there. They took them to the town of Ramah. They gathered them there, and then they marched them to Babylon. They exiled them, forced march out of their country for the rest of their lives. And so the people, the, the few who remained in Israel gathered at Ramah, with lamentation, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, who was sort of a symbol for the mothers of Israel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there were no more. They were gone, exiled, forced out of their country by violence. Just like happened again. You notice a pattern in history? Nothing's changed. Violent leaders forcing people out of their country through oppression, through persecution, through poverty. But how does Jesus fit into this story? Why did he choose to be a part of these people? Well, here's what's interesting about that quote from the Old Testament. It's a whole long book. The very next verses, it says that her children are no more, refusing to be comforted because they're no more. But then it says in the very next verse, Jeremiah chapter 31, thus says the Lord, refrain from your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Now look at this chapter we're here. Verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child back. You see the parallel? Yeah, life's terrible. Injustice is everywhere. Even Jesus suffered. But that's just half the story. The second half of the story is Jesus coming back. Coming back to do what? Coming back to suffer for us. We think we want a king who will conquer for us. To set things right. To fix our problems to give us the money we don't have, to fix the relationships that are broken. That's what we think we want. But we, we, what we need, and this is what the Bible is telling us what we need. You don't know what you need, so God tells you what you need. You need someone to suffer for you. Who's going to suffer for you so that you don't have to suffer? Right. So Jesus could not come back and live with the life he should have lived. 
He had to come back and live the life that you should live. Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That sound like Jesus? And we hid our faces, as it were, from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Why didn't we esteem him? Because he was a refugee. Because he grew up in a poor town. Because he was poor. Because he did nothing that makes anyone take note of him. Yet, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, Jesus was saving you before you knew it. Jesus was already relieving your suffering before you knew it. He came to suffer unjustly to save us. Dr. King says it this way, unearned suffering is redemptive. He wasn't suffering for his mistakes. He was suffering ours. There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block. Others consider it foolishness. What kind of king lives in poverty and obscurity? But I am more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God and the social and individual salvation. In order to save us, Jesus must suffer. The innocent must suffer for the guilty. Jesus must leave heaven, a refugee from heaven to earth, to suffer unjustly his whole life for us. There's a hymn that starts out with sort of the way things should be. Oh, lift your eyes to heaven to see the Holy One eternal. Behold, the Lord of majesty, exalted in his temple. As symphonies of angels praise, now strain to sound his glory. Come worship, fall before his grace, the king in all his beauty. That's what, it, that's what Jesus deserves. As God in heaven being exalted. Now see the king who wears a crown. One made of shame and splinters. The sacrifice for ruined man. The substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head, the king in all his beauty. Amen. You see, God in heaven is beautiful. Amen. But that doesn't help us. We need the God in heaven to be beautiful on earth. And that looks like suffering. It looks like suffering to be beautiful. Why? Because he's being killed for us. He doesn't look beautiful to the world. He looks beautiful to those he's saving. When you see him destroyed, you think, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen because it's not me. It's him for me. Where is God in all this suffering? You see, you see the connection to your life? Where's God in your suffering? What's going on? Because I don't see the connection. Jesus, okay, yeah, Jesus was God, but what about me? This story is telling you where to see God. Look at the story. Now, when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, take the child, something bad's going to happen. God already knew what was going to happen. Then he said, he's dead, come back. As the prophecy said, when you're suffering, it feels like it's pointless. 
it feels like the world's out of control. It feels like this is not the way it should be and things are wrong. But this story is saying God knew about it and had a plan for it. Now, I don't know the plan for your life, but God does. So when you live by faith, you say, I don't know why this is happening, but somebody does. If you believe that, your life is different. If you don't believe it, your life is not different. That's what Christianity is about. It's about believing that God is in heaven, seeing the world, and planning something. And that's what the story is telling you. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet hundreds of years before, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. I had a plan for all of this. And if he had a plan for Jesus... He has a plan for Jesus' people. You see, we think, oh, man, it's so terrible. Look, another baby, another family run off. Why does it have to be like this? That's tough, but it didn't have to be like this. There's a story in the Old Testament about God working in a different way. A man named Elisha, who was a prophet, living, him and his servant, living in the house by themselves, the army of Syria, which is just north of Israel, they were at war, shows up at his door with a whole regiment of soldiers. If you had to pick one person that you're friends with to stand against an entire army, would there be anybody? There's no, there's no winning that. So this story is not as bad as that story. They hadn't found them yet. So in that story, the, they come out their door and the army is surrounding the house. And they said, give us what we want. And the servant said to Elisha, we're done. There's literally nothing we can do. And Elisha was like, you only look at things with your eyes. So he prayed to God. He said, open his eyes to see things that he can't normally see. And when he opened his eyes, there was angels all around the other soldiers. And then he's, God, the angels don't even do anything. The angels don't kill him. Now, if you don't believe in angels, I'm sorry that you live in such a one-dimensional world, but there's more dimensions than what you can see. The angels arrive and blind the soldiers. They don't even fight them. They blind them. Now, tell me which God is that and which God is this. It's the same God. Why did Mary and Joseph flee when they could have been saved? Why didn't God do the same thing here that he did then? Because suffering is part of Christianity. If Jesus didn't avoid it, no one can avoid it. He planned for it. He planned to suffer. 1,800 years ago, Christosom said, For he, if, he know, if he know what you suffer... That's God. God knows what you suffer and has the power to stop it, but doesn't. It is quite clear that in his providence and care for you, he does not want to hinder it. That's deep. And deep in the sense of hard to accept. If God could stop suffering, why doesn't he? God is good and God is all-powerful then why does he let bad stuff happen? The answer is, for whatever reason, because it's good for you. 
And you're like, that sounds arbitrary. That sounds malicious. And so he sends Jesus to say, I won't even spare my own son. Watch Jesus suffer. Before you ever suffered, before you ever had any problems in your entire life, Jesus had it worse. Before you were born into a life of hardship and pain and sickness and, and financial problems, Jesus was born a refugee, lived in poverty, and died a criminal. So God knows. He's got a plan. But it depends. Do you think God is a good God or not? If you don't think God is good, you can't understand anything about suffering because it makes God seem evil. It makes him seem powerless. But if he's good, then he has a plan. So what people do is they say, if God can't save me from suffering, somebody else has to. There's already people in the story that have done that. Last week we looked at the previous chapter. The pastors and the religious leaders went to Herod. They didn't go to Jesus. Because when you want power, you go to the political leader. You don't go to the poor person in a poor town. So they chose the Savior that would give them what they wanted. J.C. Ryle says, Do you think that Christ's cause depends on the power and patronage of princes? You are mistaken. They have seldom done much for the advancement of true religion. They have far more frequently been the enemies of truth. Put not your trust in princes. Those who are like Herod are many. People are still going to Herod to avoid Jesus. They're still going to the capital to avoid the poor town. They're still currying favor with politicians, with powerful people, with money to avoid refugees, immigrants, and poor people. So pick a side. Herod or Jesus? Power or poverty? Comfort or suffering? There's no middle ground. It's God versus the world. God in the world, suffering for us. So when you suffer, you're just like Jesus. And you know another thing in this whole story? Where's God? He's there. Where's God in all this? He's on the road to Egypt. He's fleeing for his life. He's suffering with us. God didn't just tell them to suffer. You see, this story is like, oh, this is terrible. How could God let this happen? He was in the story. He was running. He was hiding. He was scraping the bottom of the barrel for food. Don't tell me that God doesn't care. He knows what it's like to be where you are. He's in the story. He's present with us. He doesn't leave us on this earth to suffer. So what's our path? What's our path in this life through suffering? What's our relationship with suffering? Let me ask you this question. Are you a follower of Jesus or not? Because that the answer to that question tells you how you deal with suffering. So you may not be a follower of Jesus. You may think he's a good guy, and he's obviously a model for suffering and a model for sort of stoic uh, manlyhood, if you will. But are you a follower? Because a follower looks to Jesus for salvation, for life, for a pattern. But as we've seen, there's not a lot of options in the story. 
the Bible clearly sets up a contrast between followers of Jesus and non-followers. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of the enemies of Jesus. Now that's, hard, that's a hard word. But God doesn't play gray areas. He gives you a choice. Follow me or follow the other side. Follow Jesus or follow Herod. So if you follow Jesus, you've said, Jesus is the way. I've realized that this world will, will kill me, will corrupt me, and that I have been a part of the evil. So I need a Savior to come save me, to suffer for me. Now what? Now you follow Jesus. And I don't mean in an abstract way. I mean, read this story and follow Jesus. Our path through suffering is to follow Jesus through suffering. Suffering will come in this world because there's a curse on this world. How do you respond to it? How do you respond to bad things? I'll speak to the American, American audience. How do Americans respond with bad things? Well, let's see how America started. We don't like this tax policy. We don't like this government structure. We don't like the people in charge. How can we fix it? Everybody get their guns and meet me at Concord. We're going to end this. And there's America. Where's that in this story? Where's the armed conflict? Where's the band of angels resisting Herod? The response to suffering and violence for a Christian is to endure it like Jesus endured it. There's no example of Jesus taking up arms. Never once do you see Jesus killing anybody. The closest you can get is the story in the temple, but you never see him actually hurting anybody, do you? You assume he did. Where's the armed resistance? Only Peter with the sword, and Jesus saying, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Follow Jesus in response to suffering and oppression, which is speak against it and let God handle it. You speak up against it, and you let God handle it. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Only if you don't believe God will handle it. You see, if you don't think God will handle it, you'll do it. A Croatian theologian, you know anything about Croatia? There was genocide over there the past 20, 30 years. Serbians commit horrible atrocities. Here's what he said, someone who lived through it. Many, uh, many think, uh, of you think that a belief in God, of vengeance and wrath leads to violence, that God will judge. This shows that you have never suffered yourself. If you had seen your village ravaged and friends and relatives raped, males murdered, then if you don't believe in a God who is going to put all things right, the only alternative is to pick up the sword yourself and smite the people that did that. The only way to live in peace with enemies is to know that God will be just. If you don't understand that, you've lived a very sheltered life. You know why you want to fight? Because you think if you don't do it, no one will. Christians have become an armed society. I'm not talking about Americans. I'm talking about Christians. Try to separate your Americanness from your Christianity for a moment. And be like Jesus. 
not George Washington. Nonviolent resistance is the way of Christ. If Jesus had resisted at any point, we would be lost. If Jesus had formed an armed rebellion, we would be lost. And when Christians take up arms, they lose. Not the battle, the life. An English theologian said, God's children, usually in their troubles, overcome, win, by suffering. Here, lambs become lions. Here, lambs overcome lions and doves eagles by suffering, that herein they may become conformable to Christ, who conquered most when he suffered most. You know why you don't suffer very much with society? Because you don't live like Christ. We don't live like Christ. We live in a way that will make our life comfortable. And we think, I don't know what to do to be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. How did Jesus encounter suffering? Did it come to heaven to find him? Did it come to his house to find him? You want suffering? Follow Jesus to where people suffer. You want to be oppressed like Jesus? Don't do bad things. That's not what Jesus did. He went to a town where people suffered, and he lived with them. You know why we don't suffer this way? Because we have separated ourselves from people who suffer. Do you think there's not oppression in this world? Not in your life, is there? The government's not looking for you, are they? But they're looking for somebody in this area. And if you want to be like Christ, you'll go to the person the government's trying to kill, and you'll be with them. You'll go to the person living in abject poverty, and you'll do exactly what Jesus did. You'll be with them. You will live like Jesus. Whosoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whosoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I want you to look back over your life this past year. And then I want you to compare it to this passage. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was an immigrant and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Does that sound like your life? Are you living like Jesus or not? When was the last time you lived with someone who suffered? When was the last time you changed your life like Jesus changed his life? This is only going to happen for you if you first follow and see what Jesus did. And believe that he went into suffering for us. Then you'll do the same thing. So the decision right now is not whether you want to suffer or not. The decision is, do you want to follow Christ or not? This is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Will you follow Christ or will you follow comfort? Will you follow the suffering servant or will you follow power? Will you follow the refugee Or will you follow normalcy? 
consistency, stability. You can't have both. Let's pray.